I'm Rob Skinner, and this is the Rob Skinner Podcast. In this episode, I talked to Darren Overstreet, former leader of the Seattle Church of Christ and now leader of the church in Tampa, Florida. He's written a book entitled Wildfire, How Progressive Theology is Impacting the Church. Listen as he shares what progressive theology is and how to spot it, how it's creeping into and changing our churches. What is the church's role in creating social justice? What is critical theory? How to guard the gospel in the midst of a changing culture. All this and more on the Rob Skinner Podcast. Welcome back to the Rob Skinner Podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no-regrets life, make this life count, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. I hope you're having a great fall here in 2022. It's been definitely exciting here in Tucson. We're enjoying ourselves, working on campus, reaching out uh, throughout the city. And I'm really happy about this next program because got on my program, someone I knew way back in the early 90s when I led the church in Seattle, Washington. And uh, he's written a book. His name's Darren Overstreet, and he's written a book called Wildfire, How Progressive Theology is Impacting the Church. And so I, I've read the book, and I, I talked to Darren, and we know each other for, for this long time. He, he went on after becoming a Christian there in the early 90s to lead the church in Seattle, Washington. But recently, he's moved to Tampa, Florida, where he's leading the church, and he wrote a book. And the book is on progressive theology. Now, when I hear that term progressive theology, my eyes start to glaze over, to to be quite honest. But when I actually got into the book, it was so interesting because it's so relevant to what's happening in our country and especially in our churches and how the interface between what's happening and how it's spilling over into our churches and how it's affecting our membership or the disciples in the church, in particular disciples in the in the campus ministries. And it's it's really, I thought it was a great book because it puts words into situations where people, they don't even know what's going, it's hard to identify what's really happening here. But Darren, I think Darren does a great job of putting a, giving a vocabulary, giving words to describe, hey, this is what's going on. This is what progressive theology is. This is how it impacts the church. And so I'm looking forward to talking to him today. Darren, welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Good to be here, man. Thanks for, ma- thanks for making the time. It was great to see you at the World Discipleship Summit. Yeah, that was great. That was. It seems like it was yesterday. It's already been a couple months, huh? I know it. Absolutely. How'd you become a Christian? Well, I became a Christian along with my wife in uh, 1993 when we were students at the University of Washington. My my wife, Carla, and I were attending uh, the, the UW, as they call it. And we, we grew up in the evangelical world. So I, we can't really remember a time where we were not churchgoers and really trying to live out um, God's purposes. I mean, we grew up in a religious home, um, but we were still, we went to college and we were trying to figure stuff out and we were trying to get plugged into something 
that was purposeful and spiritual and that would help us grow. So we were ready, like a lot of people, for a new map or a new script, if you will, for life. And we were invited. Uh, I was invited by two guys in my apartment complex over there on Sand Point to, the, to church. And I'd been invited a few times. I went to church. You preached. Um, it's interesting you say that because when we were baptized into the church in Seattle, after a few months of attending, you and Pam led the church here. And what's really interesting is you weren't there long after that. No, absolutely you not. Yeah, so you were gone very shortly, and, and we didn't get a chance to know each other. But I do remember when I visited your bold and unapologetic preaching really had an impact. And so we got baptized in 1993, and then I graduated, got a job as an architect. Uh, and in 1996, we went into the ministry full time. So that's our that's the start of our story. That's awesome. And what what month were you baptized there in 93? February 9, February 17, 1993. Oh my gosh. I mean, because we I think we left in March. I think we left a month later at, at the most. It was it, yeah, it was a couple months. There was a lot of transition in the church. Oh boy. It was a young church. You guys were going to lead somewhere else. Um I remember that. Yeah, it was I think it was a good time for us because we we I mean, in one sense, we look back on our conversion and we we came from the evangelical world and we went into this young church. Then we graduated, got jobs. I got a job as an architect and uh, in 1996, went into the full time ministry. So we guys we guys married at the time you're baptized. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We lived in student housing at the University of Washington. You know, we may be, we may be the, some of the rare people out there that actually met in high school. So we were high school sweethearts, and um, we'd known each other since middle school. Um, but in in my senior year, we started dating, and then when we attended college at the University of Washington, we were looking for a church, and really felt like you know we're going to get married eventually. We got married. We've been married for 31 years. We graduated as married students, got baptized as married students. Um, and I, I think you can probably say the same thing outside of making Jesus my Lord. That decision was the best I'd ever made. In my life. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a crazy time. I mean, the church has gone through a massive transition. There was a lot of yep. movement in the church. I think the church a lot of people right at that time in early 93 moved down to San Francisco. A lot of people moved down to Los Angeles. There was like kind of a, um, a mass exodus, missionary exodus. I'm amazed yep. that you stayed faithful. I mean, you got to hand it to yourself. That was probably one of the weakest situations to, I mean, just the most, not weak, I'd say, but just crazy. So kudos to you for staying in there. We Pam and I went to San Francisco right after that, just for a month That's or right. two, had David, our oldest son, and then went overseas in May of that same year. So that spring was a lot yeah. happening right there. Well, yep. I, when we talked at the World Discipleship Summit, you were standing outside the, the book table and you said, hey, have you read my book? And I was yep. surprised. I was like, oh, awesome. And, and you talked about it. You you showed it to me and um, handed me a copy, Wildfire, How Progressive Theology is Impacting the Church. Why did you write a book? Gosh, that's a great question. So this is the first book I've ever written, and it is a great question. Um, I would say the seed of that book or the origins of that book started 
in my mind and heart a long time ago. So if you'll allow me to explain that, um, you know, having grown up in the, in the evangelical world, again, never remembering a time where we did not attend church, we were attracted to the ICOC. And there were two, honestly, two main qualities that we saw in the ICOC. The first was this heartfelt, heartfelt devotion to obeying scripture. Um, and that may sound interesting coming from growing up in church your whole life, but unfortunately, it, it's not. Uh, it's, it's, it's not that rare. But, but we all know in Acts 2.42, a main component of the early Christian church was devotion to the apostles' teaching. And, you know, in their time, without the scriptures that we hold in our hand, they were committed to obeying God's word above their own experiences, their own opinions, or even their emotions or their viewpoints in life. I mean, they, they filtered that through God's word, and it was unbelievably refreshing to me. Um, the other thing that really attracted us was a commitment to each other. So this idea that we still hold true, which is we value being in each other's lives, um, discipleship, the idea that the love of another mature Christian to help mentor us, to help help us be more like Christ. Uh, we're not afraid to speak the truth to each other. So mm-hmm. we do that with the goal of helping each other grow to be less like our natural selves or the selves that we bring into Christianity and more like Jesus. Um, and that's really important for this book because it brings me to why I wrote the book. Um, I've spent almost my entire life, as you said, doing ministry in Seattle. And it's a city that, Rob, you you led there. It's a city that annually is considered either the first, well, it's not the first. I, I would say that would be San Francisco, but the second or third most progressive city in America. And when I say progressive, I want to explain something. Um, I don't mean progressive in a good sense of the word, because in a good sense, progressive means progress. It means forward-thinking vision. Um, But when I say progressive, um, I'm referring to progressive in a much more secular sense. The kind of paradigm that seeps in and tends to minimize the Christian worldview, and in fact, sets itself up against biblical authority and objective truth. So that's, that's the paradigm in Seattle. It's a very secular city. And that kind of progressive thought, which I would say is bad progressive thought as a Christian, it's, it extends beyond technology or industry, and it begins to wade into the waters of spiritual meaning, identity, how I see myself and my purpose in life. And mm-hmm. as I noticed over the years in Seattle doing ministry, that progressive thought increasingly pushes God out of the center of who we are and inserts us back into the center of our own universe. Now, what I just said about what inspired me about the church (laughs) is not those things. I am who I am today as a Christian because I decided to accept God's version of who I am and, and become less of who I am and more of who God wants me to be. That goes against a lot of the progressive impulses we see in cities like Seattle. Um, so 
one of the reasons I wrote this book is I feel like sometimes it feels like we've lost the simplicity of the values that made the early church so vibrant. Mm. And we subtly replace those with values that are, are geared to make us more culturally relevant. Okay. In addition, well, in addition to noticing all kinds of progressive dynamics doing ministry in Seattle, I, I've observed over the last several years in our fellowship, and, and I want to say this with humility, because um, it's natural. Our churches are growing up. Our movement's growing up. Uh, it's changing and in many ways trying to define or redefine itself. It's natural. It happens to all Christian movements. So I'm not suggesting it's a bad thing, but especially in North America, it's a challenging thing because the challenge in North America is to define ourselves or redefine ourselves uh, in the middle of a post-Christian society. And all I mean by that is one that has basically collectively decided not to define life and reality within the context of a sovereign God. And that's challenging. So after a lot of prayer and study and research, I decided, and actually some friends prompted me and a mentor prompted me to write the book. And I wrote it hoping it would be a fruitful discussion or maybe a conversation starter about how we address the things in this progressive post-Christian society that are just knocking on the door of the church. Mm -hmm. And those things uh, tend to enter the church through four topics. As you noticed in the book, it's race, politics, sexual identity, and gender. And wildfire is simply a comprehensive conversation starters for leaders and members. And my prayer is that it will lead us to a greater awareness of the forces threatening to influence the church, not in a scared way, but in a real prepared way and equip us toward a, a greater sense of biblical integrity, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So how, again, this, this term progressive theology can be a little bit, oh, I, I don't know. It seems very academic to me. How, yep. let's just get specific. How have you seen progressive theology impact our family of churches? Where can you spot it? Where could just the average member just go, oh, there it is right there. That's, that's the impact mm. of progressive theology. That, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. So, so first of all, what you said is really true. You can, this is a very academic word or very academic. I mean, any, anything that you say is this theology. A lot of people don't live there. In fact, they shy away from it because they, they don't know how to wade those into those waters, but it's hard to narrow down. Um, but I'll point to a few things, okay? Um, we're a family of churches that, as you know, our DNA is that we want to have impact. We want to, we're, we're geared towards action. We believe if there's problems in the world, then the Bible and God, let's fix those things. Let's, let's do that. So that's who we are. And I actually really love that. Um, but it's important because North America is about 20 years behind Europe, maybe longer in becoming a post-Christian society, which doesn't default to godly things anymore. Actually, to, 
to be seen as a Christian in a post-Christian society is actually seen to be kind of stupid. Like, like how could you believe that stuff anymore? You know, so you share your faith on campus, for instance, and someone says, you guys are still reading the Bible and you believe that thing? Or you're, you're in class and, an, and a professor says, you raise your hand and say something that refers to the Bible and you're just mocked or ridiculed. So we're trying to make an impact in a society that's increasingly more of that, right? Um, it's complex. It's advanced. Now, the world wants to make progress in what it means to be human. We want to make progress in having an impact in the world. So progress is good. But what progressive theology basically says is what it means to progress anymore cannot, we can't rely on old things. We can't rely on tradition. We can't rely on the things of the past. We have to rely on what we know now. And we progressed in our knowledge of many, many things. And so let's start talking about them in relevant ways. So the big bummer is that we have this book called the Bible. It's not a bummer. I'm saying that, you know, as a way of illustration. <laughs> we have this ancient book that holds God's timeless truth. And people today say, well, that's not relevant anymore. That's how does that even work anymore? Mm -hmm. How does Paul, you know, what does he even, what does that even mean to be a homosexual in today's society? That's so outdated. So everything's seen as outdated. And so you just, you increasingly start to feel like to have an impact in our society, we've got to catch up instead of just presenting God's word to people and saying, this is God's word. I, I can't add to this. Progressive theologians, they maneuver things around in the Bible. They, um, they try to make it more relevant to a secular Western society. They know the Bible's true. They revere the Bible but they believe in its present form, it's just not going to have that much of an impact. So um, there's many ways to spot it, but, uh, and I, I suppose we'll get into those, but we also have a biblically, an increasingly biblically illiterate society. So the temptation to kind of make the Bible um, more intriguing for today's audience is real. Um, it's real. And and you, you know, I know you, you reach out on the University of Arizona a lot. You're always on campus. It wouldn't surprise me if even you have found that in a society with postmodern thinking, which rejects authority, is suspicious of the past, wants to redefine everything based on our own experiences and ourselves, you're finding a little pushback mm -hmm. when it comes to just what do you think of the scriptures as they are? Right. So the first thing I think that you'll notice is that there's um, different ways to read the Bible, which I spelled. There's different ways to, to start reading the Bible, which seem more conducive to a modern audience. Is that confusing? No. I, 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 well, I think as we get into it more, it's going to become clear. I think there's no doubt that everyone is wrestling with this, like, what's going on here? There seems to be a lot of changes. I think the one thing that, there's a number of things that you said, you go, that 
that when you wrote, I thought, okay, I can see that. I've definitely seen that. I, I just had to have a little side note. It is yeah. so funny talking to you, Darren, because I can tell you've been discipled by Scott Green. I mean, you you have a way of conveying things that, that comes across as very cerebral, very um, scholarly, and you know, you could be a professor in a in a university. But at the same time, I liked in the book how it was very approachable. It, it wasn't yeah. You know, a lot of times when you when you read a book on theology, you go, "Oh no, I'm going to be sleeping after this five minutes." Easy. But I thought it was super interesting. So I, I appreciate the fact that you are a very deep think thinker, but at the same time, making it real, bringing it down to the level of the just average member of the church. So one of the things that that I thought was interesting is you mentioned that progressive theology uses a lot of words. I mean, there's a lot of definitions. I mean, I think you mentioned there there's almost 60 different, for example, 60 different variations of sexual identity. And, yeah. um, and, and they're difficult to keep up with. What did you mean by that? Um, you know, just can oh you boy. go into that a little um, bit? Yeah. Well, you, you're right. I, I think I found last, last time I searched, I think a, I think there were like 69 or 70 different genders, <laughs> right? So, and any parent or child watching this or college student is going to chuckle because this is what, this is what we're immersed in in America right now. So the vocabulary thing could not be more important though. So I'm glad you asked that. Um, progressive theology is fueled by postmodern thinking. And most people have at least an idea what postmodern thinking is. It's, it's basically says there's no black and white. There's no objective truth. There's no certainty. There's nothing you can say, that's it, and there's no other solution, right? It's grounded in this affirmation of all viewpoints being totally valid and legitimate. Um, and so language, they you know, language has been developed through tradition, through the years, through history. So in postmodern thinking that rejects authority, says traditions aren't to be trusted, um, and progress is now considered to be reimagining all the things that they told us in the past were true, right? So we want to reimagine anything. And so when we reimagine everything, we have to rename it. We have to bring the vocabulary into a more inclusive language. There's nothing wrong with inclusion. This is the, the problem with some of the stuff we talk about. There's a lot of truth in it, so it's really appealing. But postmodern thinking is set up to be everything is okay equally. Really, I mean, it, it, it's... And so it's difficult to keep up with because every topic progressives or postmodern thinkers tackle, they have to redefine everything. And the truth is, a lot of the words that we have in the church just come from the scriptures. Right. I mean, you know what I'm saying? So it's difficult to keep up with. Right, exactly. And then I, I, I like this quote when you said, we're being trained to speak the language of the world within the context of the church and it's intentional. Yep. Okay. So what did you mean by that? Well, let me give you, okay. Let me give you a couple examples that people might really, um, they might go, Whoa, 
Um, you know, this whole thing, the whole, the whole progressive theology thing is a re-education in how we speak. And I actually, not to get too difficult, but I actually consider it kind of a modern day Gnosticism, which basically says, if you're enlightened, you'll see this stuff and you'll speak this way. If you're not, you're just not into progress, which I totally disagree with. So for instance, one minister I know, after he was speaking of preaching a sermon on biblical manhood and womanhood about an email and he was cautioned by a young person by speaking about men and women in ways that were too binary and of course he went binary what, what are you talking about of course it's i think i know what binary means and yeah you know but but he was cautioned that he needed to update his vocabulary to be more relevant to his audience and it really it really spooked him like I got to watch the things that come out of my mouth. I remember one time in a classroom setting saying, talking about the supremacy of scripture. I think that was one of the topics of our vision conference though, or uh, the ILC was the supremacy of, of Jesus. And I was cautioned. You, you really shouldn't say supremacy of scripture because it evokes white supremacy. That's not, that's not even close to how I meant it. Supremacy means above and over all, right? Right. Or uh, some some disciples have been been um, encouraged to be allies to their brothers and sisters of color. An ally is a friend, but they were they were cautioned. We need to start using the word allies instead of brothers and sisters because that's what people are saying these days. And I'm not making light of these terms. What I'm trying to say, or microaggressions, you probably heard microaggressions. Microaggressions is a new word that basically says, you didn't mean to sin against me fully, but there's something that's really triggering me towards greater offense. And these are just a whole, these are just a new vocabulary, but it's confusing Christians because they say, well, aren't there words in the Bible for this? And then they're made to feel like if they use scriptural words, they're behind. If they use these new words, they are, um, you know, they're, they're enlightened. And it is intentional. Um, here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something that's, that I want to be very careful about. But if you don't say it, it's hard to explain. Um, in the book, as you read, I confess that in the summer of 2020, we were all immersed in very important conversations in our church rightly so. When all the racial unrest and the political divisiveness was, was going crazy, I was caught off guard by how Christians were talking about how we should bring solutions into the church. So we would have meetings, and we would rightly discuss these things, and everyone was sort of bringing whatever they knew into it. And they were, it, the questions were good. How do we achieve unity around things like race and and politics and wow i mean these are sexual identity how do we do that and i understand what diversity means um but i didn't recognize the way a lot of christians were talking about it i even logged into a zoom meeting and this has happened to many christians and i noticed one of the members had her name plus she her the pronouns and i was like whoa what is that i i, I didn't know what that was at the time and that person felt strongly we should put our pronouns on there. 
So I, I, I realized something. I came to realize that my context for communication about really the hot topics in society were the church and the Bible. So, but many of our members, in fact, I would say most of our members now, have been, they're part of companies and organizations that have robust and very involved ways to train about diversity. And so what happens is was that when there's a problem where diversity needs to be highlighted, they bring that training into the church because that's what they know. Um, and it seems so natural to them. This is what we should do. This is what I've done at my company. And it causes debates. And I, I, I happen to believe this is a, th I mean, even saying these things I, I'm cautious about because these are personal. But what, what's happening is if we insist on a, what's more of a secular, progressive mode of communication about very deeply spiritual things, we're just going to keep dividing each other right. instead of saying, God has words for these. Now, maybe we can update our, I'm, I'm actually glad we've made some progress <laughs> in the way we talk. There's things that probably we said 20 years ago that we shouldn't say. Right, right. But I believe it's making it hard to really talk about diversity in the church because terms are being brought in, imported into the church. The expectation is that you should know these. And if you don't know them, you need to hurry up and know them. Or we'll educate you. But it's some, not all the time, but a lot of times it's distracting from just reading the scriptures and, and finding out what they say about the same spiritual issue. So you know what I'm saying? Does oh, that make sense? Absolutely. You know, to make a, it reminds me of, I grew up in, you know, my teen years, 70s, classic rock. And, and mm -hmm. right, right at the end of the 70s, early 80s, there was a new wave, kind of new wave came in. And then goth, goth rock. And yep. I, I had some buddies that were really into the goth. They're wearing black clothes, you know, black eye makeup, different things like that. Yep. And they would ask me, hey, have you heard about The Cure? Have you heard about Joy Division? Have you heard about, you know, Depeche Mode? And these were all kind of like, yep. um, it was kind of like England was coming out with this like really gloom and doom kind of, you know. That's right. Whiny type music that. in my mind. And I didn't know who it was, you know, but my friends were like, oh, well, you, you don't, you don't, you're not really hip. You know, you don't, you don't know what's, yeah. what's going on. You, you're not with it. And I felt stupid. So I didn't say anything, but it's, it's in a, in a much larger way. This, it's the same kind of dynamic where it's like, you don't know what cis normal is. You don't know what this phrase is. So, or, or you're, you're this race. You can't understand. You can't talk. Yep. You can't say anything you know, you're not allowed to talk because you're not with it. You're not hip. And so I think it, it really shuts people down who aren't aware of the new vocabulary because they, they just don't know what to say. They feel uncomfortable. And so they don't say anything. Well, that's it. That's it. it that's the, that's what it's causing is I, and Rob, I, I make it very clear in wildfire that it is a scheme of Satan Look, I, I say this everywhere I go. Um, bad progressive theology. And I want to I want to keep saying that because I don't want to be accused of not trying to be creative, not letting the Holy Spirit work, or progressing in the way we do church. I, I, I believe in that. But if we don't know what the what the world is trying to do to influence us with the bad stuff, we we get caught off guard. Or you can wake up one day and it's just baked into your church. 
But what happens is, here's how smart we are as Christians. We, we know that if we allow some secular theory to enter through the front door of the church, we know that's not right. So we say, you know what, you can't, you can't come in, okay? But when, when Satan does his work in the areas that we're deeply passionate about, that are personal, that, 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 that go right to the core of what it means to be human, things like race and gender and sexual identity and politics, what he does is he says, I will let, because as Christians, we're like, we should talk about that. Let's talk about it. We, we want to make a difference in the world. But what he does, instead of kicking the front door of the church down, which he knows he can't, he attaches them to these conversations. They make their way into the church without us knowing it. And then we're all of a sudden arguing. For instance, um, you know, it's, it's related to this is the idea that, you know, I've seen this in many churches. Um, we need to admit there's white privilege. Okay, that's a super debatable topic. And that is from a secular idea and theory. I'm not saying there's absolutely zero truth. I'm not, I'm not even commenting on the truth of it. What I'm saying is if you import that into the church and say, for you, white brothers and sisters, to get it, you need to admit this, is binding something extra biblical onto each other that God doesn't. So we need to be really careful. I think we also need to be careful when we we start diversity groups in our churches, that they are based on biblical principles, that there's a foundation there of the Bible as the primary source of truth, and primary, above all, and that we, we have real clear ways to have the conversation. Um, my, my fear is that, and I don't know this for sure, but my fear is that some groups are started with great intentions, but then without even knowing it, well-meaning disciples could be applying worldly wisdom, which, as James says, is loaded and stained with all kind of worldly impurities. But we, we start these conversations with worldly wisdom, which then just causes us to fight and, not, and put loyalty tests on each other. And if you really love me, you'll see it this way. Um, I've even seen if you're really enlightened, you'll vote for this kind of candidate. And, and down the road we go, instead of going, wait a second, wait a second. We don't know how to be our best selves. God does. And we only know that because we immersed ourselves in the Bible. And, you know, I, I suppose we'll get to this question, but he even has the best, most prescriptive beautiful way of addressing social justice. We don't, but we, but instead what we, we sometimes do, and I know it's inadvertent sometimes is we, we take what we know, we bring it into the church, apply some scripture to it when really it's just worldly wisdom disguised as a biblical mm -hmm. solution. And it takes a lot of discernment to know the truth from the air, which is, which is why this book is hopefully just a conversation starter. I actually want us to be unified on this. Um, but we have to, if we don't understand what the world's trying to do to influence the church, then 
then we um we just go round and round with this stuff right and well I it wanna, doesn't help i want to talk a little bit about the diversity group or what they call them squads i believe yeah and yeah. um in some situations i was talking to one church leader and he was he was concerned about it because he was afraid that it's like setting up a, a policing committee within your church, making sure that the church is keeping up to date with current trends in, you know, social justice and, and yep. the current issues. And if, if the leader chose to not agree with some particular uh, decision or recommendation from that group, they might get, they might get blackballed. They might be viewed at the very least as out of date at the worst as racist or, um, you know, homophobic or something like that. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Whoa. So that was a softball. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to pass um, that on to you there, Darren. No, look, I like Rob, you know me. I like to keep it real. That, that is where we're at. Um, well-meaning leaders, well-meaning members. And, and very hurt people. That that's a recipe for how are we going to do this in a way that ministers to our church members, but also is a light to the world. So the the groups that we've started, we we have one here in Tampa, and it can it's very fruitful. We just got to be careful because, um, and I don't mind the word diversity. My my hesitation with the word diversity. And that's why I actually might prefer the word squad is diversity in the world is autumn. There's an automatic assumption of what that means. So if we, if we have groups, I think we should call them more biblical names. I think the squad probably is a more, in my opinion, a more biblical name than a diversity group, but, but we need to not start them in haste. We need to start them with, um, like I said, the Bible is our primary source. And then we need to make sure that the diversity groups or whatever we call them are truly diverse. Um, I've talked to ministers that have said, I've got a group, but it's all one way of thinking. That's not helpful. Um, if we're going to have groups that have a diversity title attached to them, it seems to me that should be a diverse way of thinking. Now that's harder because you won't always find agreement, but that's where unity is, is really found. So I'm for it. If we can use them to, to advance how to be a greater lampstand, how to be a greater light, how to show the world an alternative way of doing this without, without looking like the world, we don't need to mirror the world in this. We need to show them a different way. So, well, and I think that's what people want, but absolutely. if we're, you know, but but unfortunately, if we don't if we don't start with a biblical assumption, what happens is leaders are afraid, and then members think the leader doesn't want to do anything. But what it is is maybe just not an agreement on what it is we're actually trying to to tackle here. And I think that needs to be sort of wrestled out. And people need to seek advice outside of their congregation. They need to have prayer and fasting and much discernment on what they're going to accomplish. Otherwise it can be a worldly exercise. Right. You know, now you, you talked about social 
Justice A and Social Justice B. And what's the difference? Why does it matter? I thought that was a very interesting discussion in the book. Yeah, well, that that's a great question. Um, that comes from a guy named Thaddeus Williams, and he wrote a book that I thought was very helpful. It's it's a bestseller. It's one of many books, but it's called "Confronting Justice Without Compromising Truth," and it's a it's a biblical based book. And in it, he says something I think we all need to acknowledge, and that is social justice for the Christian is not optional. Um, The Bible, especially the Old Testament, I mean, read the prophets. It's full of calls for God's people to live in a way that seeks justice for the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, for those who essentially can't advocate for themselves. So he goes on to say, that's not optional. Social justice is in scripture. Now, what do we mean by social justice when we say it today? And this was very helpful for me because he says the reality is not everything branded social justice is social justice. He says there's social justice A, which is the using the scriptures to basically affect meaningful change, to you're not trying to change society. We're trying to, we're trying to help people see God through our through our church and through our lives. But it's the kind of social justice that William Wilberforce used. He 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 was converted in England, and he be, he saw the humanity in people, and he used the scriptures to say, "We need to topple slavery in the UK." Something that actually proved to be a catalyst for here, us here in the United States. So, it could refer to the early church, who early on. In their existence, the Romans were were, uh, making people abandon their babies. There were babies everywhere that needed to be taken in and cared for. It's it's that social justice. It can refer to all sorts of things, care for orphans, widows, uh, going into your city and really being moved to help homeless people, or even things like sending microloans to companies in foreign countries so that they can have the kind of opportunity we have here. That's that's what he would call social justice A. You take the scriptures and you go, how can we take God's scriptures in a very wide range of needs and, and meet them? Social justice B is narrower. And actually, he would say this is what most people in America mean when they say social justice. So, in, And actually, what I've found is not everyone, but it's the way a lot of people in our churches define it. Um, and it's based more in political viewpoints or race or gender identity, you know, the real hot topics. You know, for instance, um, you know, so anyway, it's, it's more narrow than it is broad and more, more um, uh, overarching. So, for instance, to many people today in our churches, and I've seen it, I've heard it, Engaging in social justice to them may mean that you're willing to go march with me in a BLM march. And if you're not, you're not committed to social justice. Well, I would suggest that that is a very narrow view and not a fair view of social justice. Or this is what I've seen. And we look, we need to pray because there's an election coming up in like two and a half weeks. And we've been talking to the church here in Tampa about making sure that we have a really godly perspective around this. But 
social justice B might be someone saying, if you really care about the needs of the poor and marginalized, you will vote for this candidate. And if you don't, you don't care about social justice. So I understand why we do this. This is our context as North America. But what I'm saying and what, what Thaddeus Williams is saying, that it's incomplete and it's un, it unfortunately narrows what I think is a really beautiful and comprehensive picture of God caring about the needs of poor, marginalized, and oppressed people and narrows it down to our North American lens. And that's tragic because even when I get outside of North America, our international brothers and sisters say, why do you guys worry so much about one tiny aspect of social justice as if it's everything when we have real needs of all kinds that we're trying to apply the scriptures to? Mm. So, and you know what, Rob, we don't need to do that. Um, what we need to do is just take the scriptures and develop a holistic approach to social justice that that fingers into all the 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 hurting parts of our community, and there are many. And we need to understand that we're we're a diverse church, we're a very broad church, and we need to work hard at when we work hard. We need to at at what it means to to have social justice. We need to. We want to bring a deeper and a more broad understanding of that, of what it means to partner with God and the, basically the restoration of a hurting world. I mean, that's, that's the call to biblical justice. So I think we should start in churches by saying, are we, are we talking about A or right. talking about B? I thought that was a great, great distinction. It, that's the kind of thing where it, it just made me think, yep, that's exactly right. Because without that kind of a discussion, you think, well, I just have to buy it buying on the whole enchilada or else I'm yeah. uh, obtuse, I'm insensitive, I'm unloving, I'm uncaring. And I, yeah. I thought that was a great, great point. Now, I want to just talk to you about something that's maybe a little sensitive. You're a white guy. You're talking about these topics. Yep. There are people that are like, you can't talk about this stuff. Yeah. You don't understand, Darren. You, you don't get it. You're not with it. You're white. You've grown up in a, in a privileged background. You've got ministers in your family. You grew up in a church background. Who are you to write a book on this? You, you can't talk about this. How do you answer that, that person? Yeah. Um, it's a great question. It's, it's being asked of me and, and a lot of people like me. Um, well, first, what I would try to do, Rob, is really understand that comment. I think the more we can be curious about whatever is said to us, curiosity opens the way to a greater understanding. So I'm, I, I really would try not to be defensive about that. By the way, I've been told that. Um, I know I've been told before that I shouldn't speak about stuff like this because I'm white. And obviously, I don't agree with that. Um, and I don't, I'm not going to live like that. But I think my, my first move or my first step to my brother or sister is curiosity. So tell me more about that. What makes you believe that? What makes you think that? Uh, do you really believe that? Um, I want to draw them out instead of just reacting. Because we, we all, when pressure, like the things of 
that Satan is doing in our society or apply to our lives, we default to something. And I want to make sure that I'm trying to see reality through my, through my brothers and sisters lens that, that didn't have a life like me. I have had hundreds of hours of conversations in my own churches that I've led and in writing this book that are aimed at, tell me more about you. Cause I, I want to understand why you feel that way about me. Now, the second thing is I would hope that we would all agree that that in and of itself is a progressive theology idea. The idea that some people are qualified, some people are not. In the book, I talk about critical theory, which basically divides people into camps of more qualified to talk, less qualified to talk. And I, I want to be clear, I reject that. Um, it's wrong. It's not gospel-centered. It's natural. It's who we are. It's why we're human. We're, we're, this is what we do. But we can't accept that. Um, having said that, I know my limitations. I know I didn't have the same experiences as someone else. But it doesn't mean that we should take the wisdom of the world, which, which is really great at telling people who has value and who doesn't, who can speak, who doesn't, and drag it into the church. Uh, the truth is, if we're going to make progress in our broadly diverse churches, we need to honor all perspectives. Mm -hmm. We need to be, if you have a perspective that's different than someone else's, it is your biblical duty to be curious about that person's perspective instead of shutting them down. Um, the world shuts people down um, by nature. God's kingdom is different, though. And, it, and, and quite frankly, what I think about some people can speak, some people can't. Um, and, I, and believe me, I understand representation and I understand all of that. I, I'm, I've been in leadership a long time. But when we buy into a paradigm that says some people can speak, some people can't, I don't even think we understand how unattractive that is to the lost world who are so tired of that. Um, and I'll throw another monkey wrench in this. <laughs> um, and I'm, and I'm really meaning, I mean this with all my heart. I can talk to a hundred white people and they have on these topics, they have opinions all over the place that differ from each other. Now I can talk to a hundred African-American people and they have opinions that are all over the place. So even when we're talking to people that look like us, sometimes we're not even agreeing. So that's the nature of humanity. That's the nature of our sin. So I, I would exhibit curiosity. I would be, I don't take it personally. I want to know more, but at the end of the day, I, I, I just would try to convince people we need to be deeper and more biblical than that. Um, and not, not put, not bind these worldly ideas onto each other as all fellow redeemed Christians in the church. Right. We, we all sit together at the foot of the cross, different experiences, different backgrounds, same redeemed sinners, though. And that needs to be really highlighted. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a great, great point. And I, I think one of the things that impacted me early on about the church was so many different people in it. 
And yeah. it's really powerful. I was preaching on Ephesians 3 on Sunday. Paul's talking all about that. And I find it so interesting because he's absolute Jew. I mean, he's like the prototype. He is like the exhibit A of a Jewish man, Pharisee. And yet he's yep. there talking up and representing, supporting everyone else, Gentiles, you know, everyone unlike yep. him of, a, of every race. But as I studied, I was like, you know, he could have said, hey, I can't really talk on this subject. I can't really talk about the Gentiles because that's not my background. I grew up in a very uh, sheltered Jewish experience, point. and I, I wish I could, but I can't really talk to you. I can't really talk about this issue. I'm going to turn this over to somebody else, but he doesn't. And I, yeah. I love that about the Bible, and I think that that's if we allow that to get into our churches, people won't feel like they can talk about it, and yet it's in the very, very core of of the gospel. It's right there in the early church. And in those issues we're dealing with now, you can find them right there in the old test or in the new Testament. So anyway, can you, I don't want to go too long, but I thought it was really powerful when he talked a little bit about the background of critical theory and then mm. one aspect, critical race theory. Can you just, for those who may never get to the book, just give a little, just a quick uh, overview of that. Sure. Well, if, if postmodern, this is the way I think about it, postmodernism is a way of thinking about a reality a, that is relevant today. Critical theory is a way of organizing our reality. So critical theory just says, critical theory is an impulse that we all have, which is we look at society and we attempt to make meaning from it. Why, is, why are things like this? So critical theory was developed by Karl Marx and some German philosophers, basically a long, long time ago, as a way of describing why are there why are there actually financial or economic inequities? What exists that would be that would make things like that? So it's a way of organizing. There's powerful people, not powerful people, and so in other words, you probably heard of this. You're either oppressed which means you're held down by the power of someone else or an oppressor, which means you hold the power over someone else. And on either side, it could be no fault of your own. It's just who you are. So critical theory is the way that a lot of progressive theologians call on, um, they, they call on that to explain some of the power imbalances in society. Who are the oppressed? Who are the oppressors? who needs rescuing, who doesn't, who needs to stand down, who needs to, I'm not saying anything about, I'm not saying this is a stupid theory. I'm saying, again, all I'm saying is that's the way a lot of disciples, whether in academia or their jobs are trained to see power imbalances. So what they do is to find solutions in the church. If we bring critical theory into the church and say, Oh, You've been in power. You need to be quiet. These people have not been in power. They need to speak up. We're essentially importing the world's wisdom into our conversations. So I don't think it's helpful. I'm not saying it hasn't helped society. I'm saying as a way of doing life in the church, it divides. It actually is devoid of the grace that is inherent in the gospel. For instance, there's a book out there by Robin D'Angelo, and I'll, I don't know if I'll get in trouble for saying this, but I say it in my book. 
it's called white fragility. And it's, it's basically, it has a lot of critical theory in it. It basically says, um, if you're white, you are part of the dominant group and you need to, you need to do the work to bring the people not in the dominant group up. And she describes kind of a graceless way of going about life, which, which again, maybe there's some truth in that. Maybe there's something that can help some people in that. But if we bring that into the church, then we get what we see, which is you need to be quiet. They can speak up. You don't know what it means to be oppressed. They do. And we start to assign people spots that we don't even, um, we don't even see in scripture. We don't, we don't see that. So I think we need to be really careful with using critical theory as a way of, of analyzing power in the church. Is there, should we analyze power structures in the church? Of course. Should we have frank talks about things that may be not fair? Of course. I'm not saying that. I'm saying critical theory is mixed with postmodernism as a way of thinking and organizing that some people feel like is, is transferable into the church. And I just don't know that it is. Mm-hmm. Um, what's happening is um, the net effect. And I don't think this is helpful. The net effect is that um, some people just decide to be really quiet. Mm-hmm. They say, I'm not speaking up. I'm not saying anything. I'll feel it. I'm just not going to say anything. And then other people do speak up and um, I'm, I'm not even saying about what they say. I'm just saying we don't want to perpetuate a system where disciples feel like I either have to be louder or I have to keep my mouth shut. That to me seems too much like the world. Right. What we need to do is create a system where everyone can lean into each other's pain and perspective without putting worldly um, labels on each other. Because uh, because God freed us from all of that. Right. And we shouldn't bind that on each other because of what society is telling us. Right. So well, I thought that was very powerful when you said that, you know, in the gospel, we we are all free from our shame, from our from our guilt, mm-hmm. just across the board, regardless of our backgrounds. And that's that's the good news. But but yes. some of these teachings come in and assign guilt or shame to a certain class of people, regardless of, of what it is, simply because of identity. And I, that really rang a bell for me. I mean, it just helped me go, yeah, that's right. I mean, in the gospel, I'm free, and so is everybody else. And why would we want to assign shame where God has not assigned shame, where he, he has given freedom and he's given forgiveness? So I thought that was a very, very insightful and very helpful for me to take a look at that. Yeah. So yeah. let's let's talk. You had some great examples in the book. I think one of them was the Portland. Uh, There's a government building in Portland. Oh, you talk, sure. You talked about that. And another thing you talked about a minister and a church in the Seattle area that was really super progressive, and then it mm. imploded. And he used that um, because I'd like you to just talk a little bit about those. But there seems to be the idea that unless churches follow progressive theology and quote unquote, get up to date, the church is going to suffer. But you make the claim that the only way a church will really grow is to resist that tendency to conform. Now, why yeah. is that? Can you, can you discuss that? 
Yes. Um, okay. The, yeah. That, I know we don't have a lot of time left. This is, this is a really important question. Look, and let's just say it. We're the ICOC. We like to grow. We like to track growth. I really think we need to be careful here, though, because there's some dynamics within progressive theology that come from postmodernism that if we buy into fully flatten all sin out, and actually no one gets baptized because everyone needs to affirm everyone's reality, and it removes judgment. So if you remove judgment from the Bible and from and drawing lines of sin, you basically don't have a church anymore. So what happens is the, well, for instance, the, 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 the church in Seattle that I grew up watching in the ministry, it grew to not, it grew to about 4,000 members. And one day the, the, the minister, you'd have to read about the entire story in the book, but the minister just decided that the Holy Spirit was telling him that we need to be inclusive. The Holy Spirit has revealed to him that we need to be inclusive and include affirmation of LGBTQ people as saved, sincere Christians, regardless of repentance. And you can watch the video online. Um, I watched it, and it was really hard not to be captured by his sincerity, his emotions. He was, he's a powerful communicator. He was in tears, and he said he really appealed with his church. And this is in Seattle. This is not in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is in <laughs> Seattle, which is a very progressive city. He said, I, I appeal to you. Follow me in this. Our church will grow. It's, it's, it's where we need to be in the future. Almost overnight, the church fell apart. Um, people didn't buy into it. They knew this doesn't feel like the Holy Spirit. So what I do in there is I just assess and there's some data out there and and data's data you know you you can agree with it or you or, or not but there's some data out there through barna through pew research through a book called the myth of the dying church that i referred to that basically show us that overall the ones that are growing numerically are churches that resist being culturally relevant that have a more traditional view of what it means to live out the scriptures instead of a more progressive view. And I was stunned by that, Rob. I'm, I'm like, you would think that by, with having cultural relevancy as a goal that people would blow into your church left and right, but actually it's the, the opposite. There's a book called The Disappearing Church by Mark Sayers. It is brilliant because he points out what we know as preachers, and that is in the middle of a corrosive or a corrupt fallen society, God scripturally is calling his church to be what he calls a creative minority. So be creative with the scriptures and how you, you approach society, but be, a be okay with being a minority. And this is, this is what we read about in the Bible. Um, God's people were always wrestling with how, when they went into a new society, how to be relevant. They would often follow pagan gods, and God says, don't do that. Trust me. Stand apart. They would marry other women to be more relevant. They'd say, why are you doing that? You, you know, they would always struggle. And, and I mean, this goes back to the garden. They would always struggle with believing 
God has a better way of doing life than we do. And I think what he's trying to tell us today is that um, this postmodernism we're seeing, which is everything's okay, everyone's truth is truth, no lines in the sand, don't judge people about anything, really. Um, I think as it seeps into progressive, bad progressive theology into the church, it is actually muting the effectiveness of the church. I think it's causing members at times to go, why do I even need a church? This feels mm -hmm. like the world to right, me. Right, right. Or it's causing people to go, um, why would I need to sacrifice my money, my time, and, so, and, and myself to be a part of something that I can actually just be a part of in the world? The way the church has always grown is by standing apart. Mm -hmm. And God does the growing. We just need to trust that if we do it his way in any society, any society, in any generation, he's going to bless that. And I think we have a hard time with that. Oh, I thought that was so powerful. I, there's so much I, I could talk to you about. I mean, I, I remember an early interview I had with Mike Fontenot, and he talked yeah. about how I, we talked about, you know, the cultural issues that are swirling around. He said, it reminds me of the late sixties. There was a huge Jesus movement and hippie movement and stuff like that, but people still want to hear the gospel. And Mike Fontenot, he's, I think they've doubled the churches down there in, in uh, Fiji and Australia and stuff like that. But essentially he's like, hey, we're just going to stick teaching the Bible and people that are interested in that are going to come. Very simple, a very simplistic yep. approach in my, in my view, just like this guy's like, hey, I'm not going to worry about that. We're just going to preach the word and right. people will become Christians. And I could see how that would be off-putting offensive to some people yeah. like this guy is so out of touch. He's just so out of the times, but guess what? People who are looking for truth, they, they latch onto that. They go, okay, this guy's, this guy's different. And I think that's what, what you're saying. And I think I, something about it just rings true. Like we will become, if we try to chase every cultural trend, we'll become nothing. It's kind of like, well, a, and Rob, this is shoot, man, we could do a whole, 10 more podcasts on this, but I'll tell you what, here's what we need to realize is that sometimes we are drawn in our demographic where ministers or parents are drawn to become, to buy into some of the bad parts of progressive theology, because we want to win the youth. We want, we want the next generation to be inspired, but here's the truth. Plenty of surveys by Barna and others that say there's a book called faith for exiles. That is a really good book. That, that kind of debunks that. That's not what kids want. That's not what college students want. They, they're afraid to say it, but that's not what they want. I just last weekend talked to 200 college students at a retreat about this very subject. And to be honest with you, Rob, when I got up there, I was kind of nervous. Mm -hmm. I was like, I mean, I'm older, I'm white. I'm talking about don't give in to progressive theology. I laid it out. I'm telling you, there was a lineup of, of young people talking to me. And the comments I got afterwards were, you're speaking truth into the reality that we're living. Right. People don't understand how hard it is to be a Christian for me. Right. You're giving me words to explain why it is so hard. And I think we got to, I really think we got to wake up. Oh, big um, time. If we don't talk to our college students, especially about this, People are just going to keep going to conferences going, why isn't our, why aren't 
campus is growing. Why aren't we baptizing more people? When the students might be saying, you're not helping us engage these very tricky dynamics. Right. And, and the thing is, what I left that retreat last weekend understanding is they really want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. I was so encouraged because yeah. I'm like, wow, this is the conversation, especially in North America. I think we got to be careful that we don't just assume the whole world thinks right. like this. Right. This is a North American phenomenon. Definitely. We better start to educate ourselves on it. Right. Oh, it was it was great. And that's where I think you do a good job in the book because the book covers in detail the issues, but at the same time, it's still accessible to the average Christian. I mean, it's still, I I like that. I think that it has a good balance. I mean, you really make it easy to, to get into, and it's not too long. It's not just going to, you know, get, get lost. That's the trick, man. (laughs) That's the trick. Okay. Final couple of questions. Why is it so hard to stand up to progressive theology? And can you give some tips? Can you give us some one, two, threes? Can you just make it easy for us? Like when we, when we run into this, what what can we do? Well, it's hard to stand up to because postmodern thinking has changed. Postmodern thinking, after all I'm saying, I want to make something very clear. It doesn't just always have to be a bad rap. Postmodern just thinks there's many different ways to look at a solution at a, at a reality. I'm glad we have postmodern thinking in counseling, in, you know, in psychology. I'm glad there's not just a black and a white, a wrong and a right. I mean, that's that's not helpful. Problem is, the postmodernism we knew 20, 30 years ago has changed. And it, postmodern, and I say this in the book, postmodernism has become an angry tyrant. People use postmodernism to further their agenda of reality or their theory about life. So if you don't agree with them, I'm, I'm not overstating this, you get crushed. You, you, you agree when that's the irony of postmodernism, where everything goes, you have to agree or you're wrong, which is total contradiction. But you either agree with our view of life or you're unenlightened and wrong. And so no one wants to be that. So it's hard to stand up because the last thing I want to be thought of is a person who isn't in favor of progress, but that's a lazy way out. That's a simple way out. So I think the way to, the way to combat it or the way to stand up against it is to, if you're a church leader is to really educate your church, work hard at biblical literacy, um, engage the hot topics. Don't ignore them but make sure that you insist they're done with scripture. This can be a lonely thing for ministers these days because you could get, you know, you could get in some trouble uh, with people, but you have to keep bringing people back to the infallible, never changing word of God. Mm. And, and I think that's the first thing. I think people just need to approach each other with a ton of curiosity I think we need to decide as churches, there's no deal breakers. There's no, you know, I've heard, I've heard something, Rob, over the past couple of years that breaks my heart and you can't find it in the Bible. You know what it is? What's that? People say this about people that maybe don't agree with their viewpoint on something like this. They say, I'm, I'm done with that person. Think about that. A human being says to another human being, you don't agree with me, so I'm done with you. How is that even one iota like the savior who looks at us 
when we firmly rejected him and say, I'm not only not done with you, <laughs> I want a relationship with you. Mm. And I think we need to start seeing each other through the eyes of scripture more than we do through the eyes of the world. Right. Um, I think people on the, to use phrases that everyone knows on the far, far right, need to start leaning into their brothers and sisters on the far left, vice versa. Um, I did a lesson in Tampa a few weeks ago, and I said, maybe you just, we just need to have a rule. If there's someone you disagree with, have a cup of coffee. Right. Ask them about their life. Yep. Pray with them. Pray for them. Yep. Um, lean into each other. Exhibit biblical humility and curiosity. And make at least... Now, we can't, we can't decide what the world is going to do. If I say something to get canceled by the world, that's the world. Right. But God help us if we don't have an agreement in the church that says, no matter what happens, I'm not canceling you. Right. You're my brother right. or you're my sister. If we can't say that, we get, we got to go way back to square one. <laughs> and then I think, well, I think we just need to take the temperature down and try to see each other's perspective. A lot of discoveries come from that. Right. That's off the top of my head. Just that's, I mean, that's great. There's so there's, it's such a multifaceted topic. It's no way we can uh, talk yeah. about all the ways. But I like the way that, again, you gave a vocabulary for discussing it. And one of the themes that you mm -hmm. just mentioned is let's, if we're all Christians, let's use Bible terms. Let's use Bible words, Bible concepts. Yes. Uh, before we just simply cut and paste worldly concepts and words and vocabulary and just in importing them into the church. Let's make sure we're talking about the same thing with the same language. And so that was very yep. good. Not Let's not cancel each other. I like that. No. Let's not say I'm done with you. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad Jesus didn't say that to me. Rob, I'm done with you. Could you could say that to us today. <laughs> you could say that based on what we said tomorrow, yesterday. I mean, exactly. I just go, Lord, please do that. Don't, please don't tell me that I'm done with you. But no. that, that's great. Now, Great book. Really appreciate your writing it. I think it's a great tool. And, and definitely being on campus, I mean, you just can see the, you can literally see the difference, the yeah. the, the change over time, yeah. the kind of oh, yeah. um, disconnection from spiritual roots and dis spiritual background, the, hey, you know, I'm not interested in that. Having literally having a thought about that kind of stuff. But where can a person find your book, Wildfire? Um, two places. Um, the publisher is Illumination Publication, so you can go to IPI and or Amazon. Amazon has it. So either one of those places. And I think IPI may have it on Kindle. I'm not sure they were working on a reader, but it's pretty news. But those are the two places. And I really appreciate you reading it. Appreciate you thinking about it and, and having this discussion. And there's more to come. I mean, we've got to in something like this, we just scratch the surface, but hopefully something I've said, even if someone doesn't agree with it, they at least can go away and think about it. I think we'll be better if we do that. Absolutely. Darren, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Rob. God bless, man. Thank you so much for joining the Rob Skinner podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and let your friends know about it and how to find it. Because my goal is to inspire you to make this life count live a no regrets life, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Have a great day and make this life count.